Welcome to Into Africa. My name is Judd Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. This is a podcast where we talk politics and challenge paradigms. On deck today, recent protests have roiled Senegalese politics. What does it tell us about the health of the country's democracy? And the UN closed down its peacekeeping mission in Darfur, Sudan in 2020. Was it premature? Plus, we discussed the state of peacekeeping in Africa. Shouldn't the United States pay its arrears to have a seat at the table? So whether you have a history with the continent or you're a newcomer, we want to get you into Africa. Major protests broke out in Senegal in early March over the arrest of one of the country's top opposition leaders. Is one of West Africa's strongest democracies teetering? Joining me to discuss Senegal and other topics are Paul Simon Andi, Senior Advisor to the Institute for Security Studies Regional Offices in Dakar and Addis Ababa, Kate Omquest Kanaf, Director of the African Center for Strategic Studies, and Shadrima Das, Senior Director of Peace and Security Policy at the Better World Campaign. Usman Soko, who came in third in the 2019 presidential elections, was arrested in early March for disturbing the peace and participating in an unauthorized march. This sparked a wave of protests throughout the country. Senegal has been experiencing some of the country's worst unrest in nearly a decade. Over two weeks, thousands of young people took to the streets. The protests kicked off after the arrest of opposition leader Usman Sonko. He was accused of rape. But some people are worried that the case is an attempt by President Macky Sall to silence the opposition, something the government denies. Now, these protests were in part about Sanko. He's a very popular opposition leader who's been charged with rape, an accusation he denies. But I think it's also about the disillusionment with the Macky Sall government and public frustrations about a sluggish economy. Paul Simon, how do you explain what's happening in Senegal? And equally important, where is the country going to go from here? The protests we saw were certainly the culmination of several issues, as you rightly put it. They definitely go beyond just a court case involving a major opposition figure. They are linked to widespread resentment stemming from socioeconomic hardships that have worsened with the government's strict measures to slow down the spread of COVID-19. But the crisis also reflects tensions that follow the controversial 2019 presidential election. We tend to forget that this election was highly contested and the political dialogue that followed that election in May 2019 failed to diffuse the pressure. The crisis fueled a widespread view among Senegalese of a regime using the justice system to achieve political goals because Sonko's case echoes those of other political figures that President Macky Sall managed to uh, put in jail before the 2019 elections. So I'm talking about Karim Wad, the son of the former president Wad, and also the then very popular figure, Khalifa Sall, the Dakar's mayor, who are also jailed. Where does Senegal go from there? I think if President Macky Sall needed a wake-up call, he got one and he should take it very seriously. Should he consider 
running for a third term as a president, he would need to consider the type of legacy he would like to leave. And he should really think about the conditions that actually led him to the presidency, namely his predecessor and mentor, President Abdullah Wad, who actually ran for a third term and was actually defeated by Makisal. So Senegal is heading towards difficult times and those protests were just a sign of that something was brewing underneath the surface. Yeah, I don't think he's going to have much of a positive legacy if he goes for third terms. And I'm really glad that you brought up the candidate disqualifications in the 2019 election. I think increasingly we need to look at candidate disqualifications as part of a package with third terms. And we saw it in Cote d'Ivoire and we've seen it in other countries as well. There was a press report that said that the Senegalese media has never felt or they said that they've never faced so much intimidation. And if it's a wake up call to Macky Sall, I'm not sure because he's now delayed the local elections, which were planned for late March. They were supposed to happen in 2019. So a pattern that we see in other countries like in Chad, where local elections keep being pushed and pushed and pushed further into the electoral calendar. I want to ask you, Paul Simon, and maybe Kate, you have thoughts on this as well. This country, Senegal, is one that is always favored by the international community. Almost every president, U.S. president, that visits the continent goes to Senegal. But clearly things are not well. Freedom House just lowered Senegal's status from free to partially free. And I'm curious, Paul Simon, first, what should ECOWAS be doing here or maybe international partners as well? This crisis should be an opportunity for all of us, actually, to rethink our assessment methods of what we call democracies in Africa. We should interrogate our criteria, how solid our assumptions are. And particularly, I would like to ask whether recurrent peaceful alternation of power is sufficient, actually, because that seems to be the only thing that happened in Senegal and that was considered as a high-level type of democracy. Maybe we are too focused on electoralism and not enough on the quality of governance. A cursory look into some of Senegal's structural data calls for a bit of modesty in that respect. Senegal is a deeply poor country with a widening gap between rich and poor. Senegal has, surprisingly, an education rate that is much lower than the West African average. But that also means that the country is producing social marginalization en masse, which doesn't occur anything well for the next 25 years. But also, this crisis was revealed also an extremely corrupt judicial system. So in fact, Senegal is a very sick democratic country, if at all. Kate, any thoughts on how the international community should approach Senegal? Well, I just echo that I think democracy is under stress on the continent uh, writ large, and it is disheartening to see how it's even manifesting in a country that we have considered to be strongly democratic, such as Senegal. So the deterioration in its objective rankings, as you noted, uh, Judd, and these recent challenges, I think speak to the broader issue of, you know, youth are disconnected from their leaders and from their elites. And if we do not find viable forms of representation and inclusion for them, then I fear that we'll watch Senegal go down a slippery path that sadly we've seen some other countries that uh, we used to consider strongly in the free or the democratic uh, side as well. So I I think it's worrisome. And I know Senegal and many Senegalese uh, to be the most strongly committed Democrats on the African continent. And we certainly want to see, as uh, Paul Simon said, 
not just a focus on electoralism, but truly qualitative representative government for people of Senegal, for people across Africa. That's the most important thing for peace and security and for social and economic development, for sure, is the strength of that representative government. I think that's absolutely right. And I hope for the Biden administration that we stop categorizing countries as the good countries and the bad countries, right? It's such a basic and I think problematic categorization that we do in classification because we could be talking about the things that Senegal is doing right at the same time talking about the challenges. And we could have been doing that back in 2011 and 2012 and 2013. And I think we tie our hands when we say, well, we're going to uphold and put a country on a pedestal when no country, including the United States, has figured out its democracy and has challenges. So I hope for a more nuanced approach, both on Senegal to call out these problems, but in general, stop picking countries as sort of these exemplars and talk about their challenges and opportunities honestly. If you want to hear more on Senegal, I hope you'll listen to our friends at Ufuhama Africa. They did a phenomenal deep dive on Senegal. It's a great episode, so please check that out. Let's move to our second topic, which is on Darfur. At the end of 2020, the African Union United Nations hybrid operation in Darfur, UNAMID, transitioned into a new special political mission. After more than 13 years, the mission, known as UNAMID, and its mandate to protect civilians and stabilize the region is ending. It follows a decision by the UN Security Council in late December to halt operations by the end of 2020 because it said security in the region had improved. But here in Nyala in South Darfur, many are worried. Chandrima, this decision has been a long time in the making. Even before the fall of Omar al-Bashir, they were talking about transitioning UNAMID. So... Why was it shut down after 13 years? And maybe what do we know about the new political mission, the UN Integrated Transitional Mission in Sudan? What's the story here? The closing of UNAMID mission is really a reflection of the political transition in Sudan as well as globally. The political will of the Security Council was to close the mission was really initiated back in 2017 with the Trump administration's desire to cut costs and close missions. And we should definitely admit and acknowledge the frustrations of UNAMID from its conception. The Bashir government really didn't want to permit the peacekeepers in in the first place, which is why it was a hybrid mission. And then on top of that, the new transitional government in Sudan really wanted to close UNAMID because it wanted to show success. So I think that. UNITAMS is a way for the UN to tell the international community that we are not abandoning Sudan and we're not abandoning Darfur. We'll see how it looks, um, but it's definitely concerning when we see ongoing violence and displacement in the Darfur region. Well, let's talk a little about that continuing violence. Kate, very few people I know has more history with this region in the United States. You served as USAID mission director in Sudan. You were later the USAID Assistant Administrator for Africa during the Bush administration. You continue to write and think about Darfur all the time. So are the problems solved? Can you tell us a little about some of the clashes that have been ongoing? There's still at least one rebel leader, Abdul Wahid, who is not laying down arms and has been resistant to negotiations. What are the key challenges and can UNITAMs address them? Thanks so much, Judd. Indeed, uh, Darfur continues to be a challenged uh, region in spite of the promise and the hope of the revolution and the political transition in Sudan. 
We still have massive citizen security and human security needs in this region. And in fact, in many respects, they're rising, not uh, diminishing. UN OCHA recorded uh, for the second half of 2020 twice as many incidents of what they call intercommunal violence as in the second half of 2019. But I think we really have to unpack that term, intercommunal violence. I think what we're seeing happening in Darfur is complex. It's compounded by the overall transition and by the Juba Peace Agreement that was signed specifically with a number of the Darfur rebel movements and the armed groups from other marginal areas of Sudan. It has not resolved the violence, as we've noted. We still see Arab militias attacking non-Arab civilians and internally displaced persons. We have intra-Arab fighting going on. We have perhaps proxy fighting between the RSF we have perhaps tensions between the RSF and the SAF, the Sunni's armed forces as well. And then, of course, as you noted, Abdelwahid, one of the rebel leaders, armed movements of the non-Arab population of the Four Tribe, he remains outside the deal. And we don't have an armed uh, peacekeeping presence any longer. The impetus for that withdrawal was certainly started before the transition took place in Khartoum, before the fall of Bashir, as you and Chinjuma noticed. And I think it was a complicated time, probably, for the U.S. to stand back from the previous administration's approach to this and from where President Bashir was in that discussion, right? And then we have a new administration, transitional administration in Khartoum. We have a new administration in Washington. We had a whole dynamic already with some steam between the U.N. and the African Union and uh, clearly a lot of challenges for UNAMID over its 13 years. You know, with a primary mandate to protect civilians, there's plenty of fair room to critique all the ways that it didn't do that. At the same time, it also arguably was a deterrent and it did enable humanitarian response and assistance. And its withdrawal seems to be wholly without preparation, shall we say, for where legitimate uh, law and order will come from in Darfur. So a vacuum is there. UNITAMS has now got a mandate for all of Sudan to support the political transition. It's a Chapter 6 uh, mission, not a Chapter 7. It's the remnant of the mandate for Darfur. I think it's just unarmed, very light civilian protection activities, but nothing that is commensurate with the level of the challenge that we see there. Okay, I don't want to put words in your mouth, Kate, but was this a good decision? Was drawing down Unimid a good decision or was it doomed to fail from the beginning, given all the challenges? And maybe Shadrima, you went away in here, too, but we'll kind of think through what we have to do with Unitams, the world that we live in. But just your hot take. Was this smart? What we did? The drawdown? The closure. I think time will tell. I'm sorry to give what may feel like a cop out answer. You know, if we stand back, the decision was taken without checking the boxes we would hope for in terms of an exit strategy, right? Uh, so preparing to hand over to whom and to what in terms of the basic security of the region. As it is, you know, the vacuum that's left means the RSF will likely fill that vacuum, the rapid support forces, which Hameti leads. And that's complicated. Uh, on the one hand, uh, Hameti was the primary negotiator of the Jubra Peace Agreement, which brought uh, the Darfur rebel movements into the overall political transition framework in the center. Yet at the same time, the Darfuri groups and the, certainly Darfuri people are still pretty marginalized. We've yet to see if it will lead to tangible change and uh, resolution of underlying grievances for the people of Darfur. And then, of course, the overall transition, you know, for the people of Sudan more broadly. So I'd say it's definitely premature. Premature. I was going to say that it sounds like you're saying it's early days. Time will tell. But you have considerable concerns. Indeed. Yes. So, Shadrima, where are you on this? 
We've heard from lots of human rights groups that they're concerned. And there was even conversations about trying to redeploy Unimid for six months, which didn't go anywhere. I think, yeah, there's real concern for the situation in Darfur and the UNITAM's inability to protect civilians, bottom line. So there's no peacekeepers. There's talks of a police contingent supporting just in Darfur. That didn't go anywhere. So I think they're relying upon the Sudanese government to implement a protection of civilians plan, which just hasn't manifested at all. We've seen peacekeeping missions end too early in Timor-Leste, in Liberia, and then have to redeploy again. So I'm hoping that's not the case and that the Juba Peace Agreement comes to be implemented in a way that will be actually supportive of the Darfuri people. But yeah, we'll wait and see, but it's concerning for sure. That's helpful. Paul Simon, your colleague, uh, Daniel Forti, I thought had a great piece entitled Walking a Tightrope, the Transition from Unimid to Unitams in Sudan. And maybe you could just share, there's a lot of recommendations in this piece, but maybe just a couple that relate to some of the questions that Kate and Chandrima have raised about what do we do in Sudan? Yes, thanks. And I think Kate and Chandrima really did a great job in articulating what the issues are. And the report tried to give some recommendations, more or less two sets of recommendations. One set for the UN, for the Secretariat as such, and the other set for the attention of the member states. Regarding the UN set of recommendations, really about creating a consensus, a political consensus, because it's not a given. We know there are diverging views about um, where Sudan should be heading, including within the Sudanese government. So articulating a kind of forward-looking political compact with Sudan to guide UN support to the political transition. And of course, also expanding support for urgent peacebuilding and protection priorities in Darfur, because I mean, the needs are still there. And also the consideration of additional reforms to the UN peace and security pillar on mission planning processes to address exactly one of the issues that it was mentioned. Regarding, of course, recommendations for member states, it's more or less about increasing financial support for Sudan's peace building and development needs. We know that the Security Council has very often been extremely divided over Sudan. And so it's really more about creating consensus, which will be certainly not an easy task. And of course, of sustaining international attention on Sudan transition and maintaining UN support over the time. So. This is in a nutshell what the report is zooming on and uh, hoping is quite historical indeed that the UN peacekeeping operation is dismantled right at a time where a country is going through a political transition. So it's a transition into a transition can be complicated. That's right. And I think you put on the table a couple of things that we'll want to address in the final section. But I can't have Kate on the podcast without asking her for some bigger thoughts on Sudan. And what do you think, Kate, the new Biden administration, Friends of Sudan should be doing specifically to Darfur, but then how it sort of integrates into these larger questions about the Sudanese political transition? Well, thanks, Judd. It's a big question. And I would just say for starters that we need to have a policy that accounts for Darfur as it is, not as we want it to be. A lot of times we're very aspirational and we want things in Darfur to be better. And so we support policies and steps that suppose that it is better when it's not actually there yet. So we do need to step back. Uh, We need to look at all the underlying issues that are still present in, in Darfur, as well as the symptoms of those issues, which, of course, is the ongoing humanitarian distress 
stress uh, the outstanding uh, needs for justice and accountability and for Darfur to find its place in this new Sudan that hopefully is being created right now as a part of this political transition. And so in that regard, I would suggest that for the United States, for the Friends of Sudan, collectively, both external Western friends and African Friends of Sudan, all of our number one focus uh, needs to be securing the transition to civilian rule. That is not complete yet. We are still very much in a pathway. Looks promising, but it's not done. The Sovereign Council is headed by the military. The prime minister is a technocrat. Uh, We have to get all the way through this transition. We have to see the Sovereign Council on the way there change hands so civilians lead it. And then we need to get the Transitional Legislative Assembly up and going so that uh, the people of Sudan are better represented even before they get to elections and to a whole new constitution, etc. It's not clear where Hameti's ambitions go. On the one hand, at the moment, he helps to secure and guarantee the transition and serve as a counterweight or a buffer against the possibility of a military coup or an old regime attempt to unseat uh, the civilian prime minister. But uh, on the other hand, he may want to be the president someday himself. So it remains to be seen. And we must stay clear eyed and focused about the need for the transition to full civilian rule and then to some form of representative governance and a political settlement for all the people of Sudan. I couldn't agree more. We've been talking about Sudan a lot on this podcast. We talked about it in the season premiere with Lauren Blanchard, and we're going to continue to focus on this topic specifically, as you mentioned, Kate, how do we get to a civilian transition in this country? But I want to move to our final segment about the state of peacekeeping and peace operations in Africa. There are currently six UN peacekeeping missions on the continent in the Central African Republic, in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Mali, South Sudan, Western Sahara, and then in the disputed Abyei region between Sudan and South Sudan. Zooming back, we've got AU missions in Somalia, ECOWAS missions in Gambia and Guinea-Bissau, and then these ad hoc security coalitions, the MNJTF and the Lake Chad Basin, and then the G5 Sahel. That's a lot of peacekeeping forces. Shadrimo, What's the value of all of these missions? And particularly, I know we'll focus a little bit on the UN ones. MINUSCO in the Congo has been around for two decades. So you spent all of your day working on UN missions. What's your best pitch on the importance of these operations? No pressure, Judd. Um, So let's just start with that there's decades of data that show when peacekeeping missions are properly resourced with adequate numbers, they save lives, they reduce the duration of conflict, and they don't actually last forever. It's cost effective. 90,000 peacekeepers are deployed around the world. It's the second largest military force after the U.S. And the total budget is $6.5 billion, which is less than 1% of the U.S. military will spend each year. It's less than the budget of the state of Hawaii, and the U.S. portion of the budget is $1.8 billion, which is less than how much the American people spend on Halloween candy every year. So the GAO report has said that UN peacekeeping is eight times less expensive than U.S. forces, and it serves American foreign policy and national security interests. As you know, Judd, when we were in northern Mali, we saw peacekeepers basically, you know, maintain after extremists have been removed from the area. And then I have been to 10 different peacekeeping operations and have seen them defend democracy, promote good governance, support human rights, protect civilians. And right now we're watching that in the Central African Republic, where they're preventing the fall of the capital, Bangui. And in 2013, we could say that they prevented mass atrocities and continue to support the peace process 
And when we come talking about Jira Congo, yes, MONUSCO has been there for 20 years, but we know Congo is very complicated and you can't really rush peace. There are more than a dozen armed groups operating in Eastern Congo with competing motives and tactics. And MONUSCO was there to support the first peaceful transition of power in its history. So I believe in UN peace operations because it operationalizes the UN Charter to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war. That's my pitch, Judd. What do you think? I think it's pretty good. I'm going to steal this line about Halloween candy. Is that true? Americans spend more on Halloween candy than on peacekeeping missions. Yeah. So we have a problem. We eat too much sugar. For sure. And <laughs> we are not giving enough to peacekeeping missions. And we'll talk a little more about that. But Kid, I just want to give you an opportunity to jump in here. Agree with Shandrima, disagree. What's working and what's not working? No, totally agree. Uh, Peacekeeping missions are excellent value for the United States and the international community. And as Chandrima said, we have lots of empirical evidence. Peacekeeping missions do help reduce violence in civil wars. They do help reduce population displacement, which is a great source of the human suffering we see as a result of violence in civil wars. So they're vitally important to continue, whether under AU, UN, all these ad hoc uh, mechanisms that are being tried now in the African context. We need to continue to work to improve and enhance the effectiveness of peacekeeping and peace support operations so that we do an even better job. As we've mentioned, the challenges for UNIMED and protecting civilians have been pretty severe and real. And we could pick apart probably each mission and say, well, but it hasn't achieved this yet and it hasn't done that in terms of the broader security or political dynamics in the region that it operates. And there are a whole host of reasons for that. And they all deserve merit and attention and focus. I would say the number one reason and challenge to work on is, of course, what everybody's identified as the primacy of politics. So a peace operation must be in support of a viable political strategy if ultimately it's going to be successful in achieving its mandated tasks and enabling a return to some kind of nonviolent, stable, secure environment where politics can address uh, the grievances that people have with each other that flare and and, uh, so often result in the need for these extraordinary measures that peacekeeping operations are. Right. So the evidence is clear, right? Peacekeeping matters. It works. There's certainly rooms for improvement. We don't want to be in the peacekeeping forever game in places like the Congo. And it's less costly than if the U.S. did it themselves. And yet this is the biggest issue is the cost and the financing and the Biden administration, the U.S. Congress. They're all going to have to grapple with this issue. And I would say there's two of them that we're going to talk about. One is the U.S. arrears. And the other one is this issue around U.N. financing of AU missions. So I want to talk about them both. But Shadrima, the U.S. owes one billion dollars in arrears to the U.N. peacekeeping operations. I'm really glad to see just once again, Ambassador Linda Thomas-Greenfield say that we need to pay our bills to have a seat at the table. There's been a series of fantastic op-eds, Madeleine Albright, Thomas Pickering, John Negroponte, like. This is the brain trust on multilateralism in the U.S. foreign policy system. And they're all saying we need to pay our bills. So why is this a problem? Can we finally fix it? Yes, it's a problem for sure. I'm going to lay it out in three ways. First, what's problematic is it damages our credibility. Second, it gives you know our competitors like China and Russia an opportunity. And third, it inhibits our cooperation with our allies. So on the credibility front, you quoted Linda Thomas-Greenfield that, you know, we need to pay our bills, have a seat at the table. President Biden said in his first foreign policy speech that we need to reclaim our credibility and moral authority. 
So if we don't pay our bills, we cannot restore U.S. standing at the U.N. That's just the bottom line. And then when it comes to China, China is now the second largest financial contributor to U.N. peacekeeping. And it pays its bills on time and in full. And it's the top troop contributing country and the only one at the Security Council. And over the last four years, when the U.S. disengaged at the U.N., China leaned in. China now leads four out of the 15 UN agencies, and they have changed the narrative when it comes to human rights and protection of civilians at UN peacekeeping mandates. And so it really undermines American value. And then cooperation. So the US puts in barely any troops, but most of the other countries in the world serve in these peacekeeping missions. So I think there's 124 countries that provide troops to peacekeeping. And when the U.S. doesn't pay, they're the ones that don't actually get reimbursed for their personnel and their equipment. So that seems problematic for bilateral relationships as well as just not the right thing to do. There's an opportunity for the Biden administration to pay our dues and pay our arrears. And I think that it would send a strong signal to the rest of the world that the U.S. is back. And we've seen this done before. In 2009, the Obama administration paid the arrears owed in one full swoop in the first year. And there was a global recession then. I know we have a global pandemic now. And then in 1999, then Senator Joe Biden helped negotiate the payment of arrears. So there is precedent to do so. And I really urge the Biden administration to signal that. And I think they have. Yeah, absolutely. As you said, there's a precedent. We've done this before. We can't lead. We can't renew our global leadership without this. We can't recommit to multilateralism without paying our arrears. And if we're going to use the global competition, the global power competition lens, which I think is appropriate here, we don't have a seat at the table relative to our competitors and our adversaries if we don't pay. So that's one part of this conversation. And the other part is about UN financing of AU missions. It's a very complicated conversation about assessed costs that we'll just put some you know nice primers in the show notes so people can access that. But Paul Simon, ISS has written about this topic a lot and its recommendations in terms of UN financing of AU missions. And I know that there was support in the Obama administration and then the Trump administration walked away from that strongly opposed using assessed contributions to finance AU peace support operations. You know, why is this important? And do you think there's an opening under President Biden? I think there probably is. The Biden administration first steps clearly indicate a more positive attitude towards that question. But I'm personally wondering if that's the right debate, if that's the right Question. First of all, because I mean, in the past, the UN has funded African missions, of course, African peace support operations. The African Union is actually involved in less and less peacekeeping type of operations, but rather counterinsurgency or counterterrorism missions. If we look at Amazon, for example. So the nature of threats has evolved and we have to take that into account. The real question is, should the international community, the UN, plan or consider a fund for such mission because we know peacekeeping cannot deal with counterterrorism, for example. And another question is, are multidimensional missions the right conduit for counterterrorism operations? We know when we look at AMISM that there are several issues related to command and control on the ground. So the question should be asked whether that's the right conduit. And for pure classic peacekeeping operations, 
I think there should be predictability in the funding of African missions. But we see the need in many places on the continent of counter-terrorism type of operations. How should they be funded? This question is unanswered in Somalia. It's unanswered in the Sahel. And when we look at what's happening in Mozambique now, we might see many scenes, many theaters where a new type of mission is required whose funding is actually not planned currently. The U.S. had just spent 20 years in Afghanistan now and ends up with a peace agreement with Taliban. Clearly, African countries cannot afford that kind of uh, investment. And I'm also not sure whether it's fair to request from UNSS contribution to fund that type of operations in Africa. No, I think that's a really important point. And I think it was in Kozana Dlamini-Zuma when she was the AU chair who had a vision of sort of a division of labor, right? That the AU missions would be more about peace operations or counterinsurgency or counterterrorism, whereas the UN would do more of the cessation of hostilities and civilian protection. I think it's hard to sort of do that in practice, a clear division, but there are different security challenges across the continent, increasingly complex ones. And it's not always the UN that's the best poised to do it or or the AU, and we have to figure it out. But the question that we keep coming back to, and you raised it effectively, is the predictability. Is it how do we make sure that we can do these missions? The Africans who are willing to put boots on the ground in very difficult situations, how do they make sure that they can pay their troops and have the equipment that they need to carry out these missions? So I hope that the Biden administration will relook at this conversation. I'm not sure when the A3, the three African members of the Security Council, will put it back on the table. But when it does, I hope that we're prepared to have a better answer than just no. But let me give you an opportunity for parting shots here. So anything that we've left on the table that you want to raise, uh, let me go with Kate to you first. And then Paul Simone and then Shadrima, you can close up the episode. Well, thanks, Judd, and thanks, Chandrima and Paul Simon, for an excellent discussion. I would just make a plea that as important and valuable as peacekeeping and peace operations are, our number one priority, certainly in U.S. Africa policy, needs to be on ending conflicts in a durable and sustainable way. Peace operations themselves do not do that. We need that viable political strategy part to be front and center, number one, in terms of our approach to managing conflict and ending conflict, we hope, across the African continent. Too often, we want to apply our security and our technical tools and feel like our humanitarian responses, and those are all important and needed. They do do something, but uh, they're the band-aids, not uh, the solutions themselves. The number one need is for us to refocus on finding durable political settlements. And uh, that means not devaluing our democratic uh, goals and norms and values and rule of law and uh, representation for people who don't feel included in their government and who don't uh, see their needs being met. That's great, Kate. Thank you. I 100% agree that peacekeeping is a tool, but it is not the solution to getting to these durable political solutions and addressing conflict. So I'm really glad that you brought that up. Paul Simon? Shantrima made a very good job telling us how cheap peacekeeping is, but actually there's even cheaper is conflict prevention. We can actually prevent at a much, much cheaper cost 
but we know it's much more difficult to mobilize political will for conflict prevention. A friend of mine used to joke and say, it's very hard for actors involved in conflict prevention to win a Nobel Peace Prize because actually the, the outcome of their job cannot be seen. When you, you're a successful conflict preventer, nothing happens actually. And it's very difficult to put the finger on what you did so that nothing happened. But it's easier, of course, to mobilize political support after an escalation of violence. Um, so we really have to come back again to the basics because, I mean, we're, we're stronger today in being able not to predict, but to clearly see signs of what looks like a bad escalation. And we know the tools, particularly the political tools we can use to actually stop certain violence to escalate to a very dangerous point. So I will actually focus on the end and up with that one. That's great. Thank you. Shadrima, take us home. You know, I agree with Kate and Paul Simon that peacekeeping is a tool and the Secretary General really has pushed for conflict prevention and peace building to be a priority and has really tried to elevate it within the UN system. I think the Biden administration has an opportunity there to help support that work and to really push forward. But, you know, when it comes right now to priorities of the Biden administration, I think that if it wants to show that the U.S. is back, then we need to pay our peacekeeping arrears. It will help restore U.S. credibility at the U.N. and on the global stage. And the bottom line is we know that peacekeeping works. So I think it's a tool that we have and the tool that we can use currently for some of the conflicts that we've seen on the continent. Great. Thanks, everyone. And we'll be back in two weeks. Thanks for listening. We want to have more conversations about Africa. Tell your friends, subscribe to our podcast at Apple Podcasts or wherever you find good content. You can also check out our analysis and reports at csis.org slash Africa. Thanks.